Let's pray and then we'll jump into God's Word this morning. Lord, thank you for um, the privilege we have to be here this morning. Uh, Thank you for uh, your Word. Uh, We thank you for moms today. And uh, Lord, some of us uh, get to be with our mom, call our moms today. Uh, Many of us, uh, our moms are are no longer here. Um, They're with you. And uh, Lord, we... I just thank you for um, every every mother here, and Lord, help them to realize that uh, they are doing uh, the most significant work on the planet, and that is raising children. And so I pray that you would bless them, encourage them, uh, give them uh, encouragement today, and we just thank you for all that you have done and will do in Jesus' name. All right, we uh, have been looking through the book of Joshua, and uh, we're going to take a little pause from that and uh, think about a topic for Mother's Day. And uh, probably in uh, 35 Mother's Day messages that I've given over the years, I've gone to Proverbs 31, I've talked about um, Hannah as a topical uh, message for Mother's Day, but I don't think I've ever given a message about children. And uh, this morning, we're going to think about children. Uh, specifically, uh, what does the Bible have to say about children? And I discovered the Bible has a lot to say about children. So we're going to look at five biblical truths regarding children, and then we'll wrap it up with some um, application thoughts and questions that will hopefully uh, drive our, our message home this morning. So biblical truths about children. It was the um, evangelist D.L. Moody he was coming out of one of his evangelistic meetings, and he was on his way home, and he came across a, a friend, and his friend yelled out to him, Hey, Moody, how many people were saved tonight? And D.L. Moody responded, Two and a half. And his friend said, Oh, two adults and one child. And Moody goes, No, no, two children and one adult. You see, the, the ch- child has his entire life ahead of him to live for God. And uh, the Bible has a lot to say about children and about how important children are. And so we're going to think about five truths regarding um, biblical truths about children. So here is number one, truth number one. Children are a gift from God. Children are a gift from God. Boy, do we need to hear that today. And we need to echo that loud today, that children are God's gift to us. A long time ago, 1980, Diane and I were living in Grand Rapids. I was a seminary student, and um, we were expecting our first child. Relatively easy coming up with a girl's name. We were, we were searching for a boy's name. I should have known better not to waste any time thinking about a girl's name because I've told many of you the last girl that was born in my family branch of the Clark family tree, the last girl was born in 1885. My great-grandfather came from a family of all boys. My grandfather was one of two boys. My dad was the oldest of four boys. My mom and dad had three boys. I'm the middle of three boys. Diane and I had three sons, and we've so far had five grandchildren, all boys. So I went back and my dad traced our genealogy and I said, when was the last girl born? 1885. 
So uh, we're looking, we're trying to come up with a boy's name, and um, we were putting a lot of thought into it, couldn't agree on anything, nothing sounded right. We were attending uh, Northland Baptist Church in Grand Rapids, and I remember they had a, an Awana program recognition night, and they were bringing lots of kids up to the platform, and so we're like, let's listen and see, you know, if there's a name that we like, and uh, we're listening to all the names, and we came back with a, a couple of good leads. And we started to look them up, and one of them that we liked was Nathaniel. And we looked up the meaning of the word Nathaniel, and Nathaniel means gift of God. And we said, that's it. We're going to name our first son Nathaniel. Because Nathaniel means gift of God, and the Bible says, children are God's gift to us. James 1, 17, every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, who doesn't change. He's immutable. Children are God's gift to us. Psalm 127, verse 3, the New Living Translation. Children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from Him. And so children are God's gift to us. And boy, do we need to to stand uh, firm and pronounce that loud and clear because, quite frankly, in our culture today, uh, many people don't view children as a gift. And uh, people view children as uh, sometimes as an inconvenience or children are a financial burden. And so we live in an American culture where uh, rather than recognizing God as the author and giver of life and life is sacred, our courts have decided to put themselves in the place of God. And since 1973, 63 million children have been killed in the most dangerous place to be in America today? It's in the womb. Do you know everybody that's against abortion has already been born? Um, and, and this is the battle that's going on. I, I started working on this uh, message on Monday, and I'm, I was going to talk about Roe v. Wade, and then I woke up Tuesday morning, I checked my cell phone, and one of my pastor friends in Wisconsin said, if this news is really true, praise God, we may be overturning Roe versus Wade. Why is that so significant? Because children are God's gift and life is sacred. And so, boy, do we need to be praying uh, for our country and uh, praying uh, for the Supreme Court justices. Here's an here's a email that came out from Franklin Graham on, on Tuesday night. Um, this is what he had to say. Dear friend, if news reports and the leaked document are true, it appears that the Supreme Court is on the verge of overturning the Roe v. Wade ruling from nearly 50 years ago. But we must not sit back and relax. The court has not issued the official ruling, and minds could still be changed. Will you join me in praying for our justices? Pray that God's wisdom will guide them in their decision and that they will have the courage to stand strong. So... This uh, gets overturned, it's going to go to the states, and now the battleground for um, the right to abortion or the right to life will be fought on the state level. So we need to be, be praying. Life is sacred. Children are a gift from God. Well, uh, secondly, second truth that we need to think about, uh, biblical truths about regarding children is this, parents, truth number two, parents 
are given the primary responsibility to spiritually train their children. Now, yes, the church can help. And um, Awana programs can help. And Christian education can help. But when we go through Scripture, Scripture is very, very clear that the responsibility to spiritually train children lies at the doorstep of the home. And uh, that's, uh, that's all through Scripture. De- Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7 is called the Shema. It was a prayer that uh, the Jews repeated every day of their life. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commands I give you are to be on your hearts. Then it says, impress these commands, God's word. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Uh, You go to the book of Proverbs. Read the first 10 chapters of the book of Proverbs. Almost every chapter starts with a father talking to his son. My son, listen to my advice. My son, my son, my son. And it's a father trying to pour into the life of his child. We come to Ephesians chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul's teaching about marriage and the various roles that are are God-given in marriage and the home and children's responsibility. But uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, fathers really address the parents Do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And so Scripture is very clear that uh, the responsibility for spiritually training children lies at the doorstep of the home. And uh, I think uh, parents need to have a a discussion like, well, what's our our plan? (laughs) What's our plan for spiritually training our children uh, because it comes very clear from Scripture. I just jotted down some practical tips about how to do that, and um, just three or four quick things here. Number one, uh, start young. Uh, when should we start spiritually training our children? It starts from the very beginning. Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul's writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, and he says, But as for you, Timothy... Uh, continue in what you have learned. Timothy's now an adult. He's a pastor in Ephesus and have been com- convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. We know earlier in the book that it was a mother and a grandmother, a grandmother by the name of Lois, a mother by the name of Eunice, who poured into Timothy's life. And so Paul says, remember who you learned these truths from. And thank God for mothers and grandmothers that spiritually pour into the lives of their kids. Then verse 15 says, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. Now the Greek word there, there's, there's a word for child, which is padia, but there's also a specific word in the Greek for an infant. It's the word brephos. That's the word that Paul uses here. And Paul says, Timothy, you've known God's word from an infant. And so we need to start young. Uh, Number two, just some hints. Um, And this is from Deuteronomy 6, the passage we just read. Look for opportunities to relate God's truth to everyday life. 
look for opportunities to bring spiritual truth into everyday life. Now, is there a, a time for formal training? Um, I'll use the word indoctrination because that's what we want to do with God's word to our children. We want to indoctrinate them into God's truth. And yes, the formal training is is important so they know the scriptures. Um, our three sons all uh, graduated from Lenaway Christian School. I don't know if they still do this. It was a long time ago. But uh, before they graduated their senior year, they had uh, a catechism that they had to learn. It was about 100-plus questions. Um, and it was uh, all about uh, indoctrinating them and so that they knew God's truth. And before they would graduate, they had to go before a couple of their uh, teachers and professors and then ask them these questions, and, and they wanted to make sure that they knew uh, what was in this book. Yeah, there's a time for that, but uh, there's also a time for informal training. And so when we read Deuteronomy chapter 6 and uh, the Shema, and it talks about impressing God's truth on children, talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Four key teachable moments. When they get up in the morning, when you walk along the road. We don't walk today. We drive in cars, uh, car time. When you sit down, meal time. I don't know if that still happens in homes today or not. Um, it, it's with as busy and sports and activities, uh, meal time sometimes doesn't happen very often, if at all. But meal time's a great time to connect. And then when you lie down at night, there's something vulnerable and precious about spending some time with your child before they go to bed at night. And we need to take those opportunities and, and try to relate God's truth to everyday life. Uh, just a couple other uh, thoughts here, uh, hints on spiritually training children. Uh, remember, more is caught than taught. Uh, the power of modeling and they're going to they're gonna see our lives, and that's going to be a lot more powerful teaching tool than what we say with our mouths. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 4, 9, he says, The things that you have learned and heard and seen in me, I want you to do. The Apostle Paul set his life up as a, as a role model for the Philippian church. And so more is caught than taught. Uh, last hint here, just uh, as we think about this, um, the importance of listening to your child, the importance of listening. You know, the old saying, children are to be seen and not heard is, is, is not true. We need to listen. And James talks about let every person be slow to speak, slow to anger, and I want you to be quick to listen. And so... Uh, the number one complaints in, in, in my reading that I've done, especially that teenagers have with their parents, is this. My parents don't listen to me. And so we need, we need to make sure that we're listening. And so parents are given the primary responsibility to spiritually train their children. Now, just one other thought here. What is the target? What is the goal of our spiritual training? And I came across this years ago uh, from a fellow by the name of Chip Ingram, and he gave a definition of successful parenting. 
So what is, according to God, what is successful parenting? And here's the definition he came up with. Successful parenting is when my child transfers their primary um, desire, submission, and obedience from me to Jesus Christ. When, when they transfer their primary submission, love, and obedience from me to Jesus Christ, he says, that's, that's then we've succeeded in our goal in parenting. So parents are given the primary responsibility to spiritually train their children. All right, I'm going to have to go a little quicker here. Uh, number three, number three, biblical truth number three is this Christ-likeness, which that's our goal in life, according to Scripture, that God wants us to conform us to His image. So Christ-likeness means and places a high priority on children. Someone has said, we'll never be Christ-like until we know what Christ is like. And so we got to go to this book to discover what's, what's Jesus like, what is Christ like. And when we read Scripture, we discover that Jesus put a high priority, a high value on children. And Mark chapter 10, verses 13 and 14, maybe you're familiar with this story. Uh, we'll actually read... Uh, uh, 13 through 16 here. Let me read it for you. Um, Mark 10, 13 says, People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. So Jesus was a rabbi. One of the things that rabbis did is that they, they blessed the children. And so here's Jesus, and there's all sorts of parents, and they've got their, their children, and they're bringing them to Jesus. Uh, actually, the passage in Luke 18, verse 15 says uh, they brought infants to him. They use this word brepha. So they're bringing a lot of babies to Jesus so that Jesus can bless them, put his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked him. <laughs> Here's the 12 disciples, and they're thinking, we're, you know, Jesus had a long day, so we're, we're kind of like maybe the bodyguards for Jesus and and so there's, you know, they're saying, hey, you know, leave them alone. Uh, the New Living Translation says, but the disciples scolded the parents for bothering Jesus. And then when that happened, Jesus got mad. He got really mad. There's a couple times in Scripture where Jesus gets very angry. One of them, I remember he was in the temple courts and they're, uh, there they are uh, taking advantage of people uh, and taking their money unfairly, and he just starts uh, driving them out, and throwing tables over. Not our usual picture of Jesus, but he's mad again. And uh, here, here's what he says. When Jesus saw this, this is the NIV, he was indignant. The New King James Version says greatly displeased. The message paraphrase says Jesus was irate. Jesus was mad. And it says in the rest of the text, He said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Verse 16 says, And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Now, Jesus was, was angry and he was mad because, as the little chorus we used to sing says, Jesus loves the little children. And the children are, are valuable and they're precious. And so Jesus 
placed a high value on children. And so if we're going to be like Jesus, um, we're going to have to love, love children. I have to love children like Jesus did. And um, that takes a lot of effort. Uh, that takes uh, learning a little bit about them. That takes spending time with them. So if you uh, try to get a hold of Diane and I during the week, and Tuesday night we'll be, we'll be here for our video series, but uh, uh, the rest of the week... Um, because our oldest two grandchildren are playing baseball, so we're uh, we're watching baseball games, and um, they have games Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And so this last week we went to games. Oh, I was hoping one of them would get rained out, but I think <laughs> we, we went to three. Went to three three baseball games. Our oldest grandson is nine. Uh, his games take a little bit longer. It was cold. It was rainy. The game started at 6, and it's like 8.15, and like, oh, man. The most exciting play is when there's a passed ball, and they come home. That's the only way they scored is like passed balls. Hardly anybody's hitting the ball. And I'm like, oh, man, I just, I, I'm not talking to Daniel like, just, let's just go home. And um, something told me, you know, this is the first game we've seen him play. Let's stay to the end. So we stayed to the bitter end. It was like 8.30. It's getting dark. We're soaked and cold and walking to the car. And nine-year-old Shane comes up to me all on his own and says, Hey, hey, Papa, Grandpa, thank you for coming to my game tonight. All of a sudden, like, I'm glad I stayed. <laughs> that that little unprompted uh, thank you made it worth it all. So Christ-likeness places a high value on children. All right, number four, two more here, and then we're done. And then we got some questions to look at. Truth number four, uh, entrance into God's kingdom, salvation, is what we're talking about here, um, becoming a believer in Jesus. Entrance into God's kingdom requires childlike faith. How, how, how do you get into God's kingdom? Well, uh, Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. Well, let me just read 3 because we'll, we'll get to the rest of the, that uh, verse in the next point here. But verse 3, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, uh, you think that might have uh, kind of got the disciples thinking and the religious leaders thinking? And it's like, no, if you want to enter into God's kingdom, you have to become like a little child. What does Jesus mean by that? What does, what does childlike faith look like? Well, number one, children are very trusting, aren't they? That's why we need to, unfortunately, in our world, we need to teach them about, at some point in time, the dangers that are in this world. I remember about, this is probably 10 years ago, we're in a restaurant and we're sitting in the entryway because it's very crowded and there's lots of people waiting and so there's this long wait 
um, before they're going to call our name for our, our dinner to get seated. And so I'm like, well, I thought I'd just maybe start talking to whoever was sitting next to me. And it was a young boy sitting next to me. I forget his age. I'm, I'm going to guess he was maybe six, six years old, seven years old. And uh, I just turned to him and started talking to him like, hey, how you doing? Uh, you know, something like, my name's, my name's Ron. And right away he goes, turns to his mom, mommy, mommy, a stranger is talking to me. A stranger is talking to me. I'm like, oh, I guess I shouldn't be talking to him because she's told him never talk to strangers. Like, oh, there goes that conversation. Uh, it was a little awkward. Um, but children are very trusting. And that's what childlike faith is. It's, it's trusting. Um, I guess I'll call him one of my, one of my mentors um, in seminary. I was a fellow that was, uh, had pastored for four years, was married, had two children, decided he needed to come back to seminary for more education. He hadn't had a seminary education. Um, Louis Kanapka is his name. And um, Louis, I, I ended up um, working for Louis while I was in seminary. We ended up being very close friends, and uh, um, God used Louis's life in an incredible, incredible way to touch thousands of people. I won't go into the long, long story, but uh, so we didn't have any kids, and I remember we were spending a lot of time with him. And uh, his son was named Adam, and he used to put Adam up on his refrigerator in the kitchen, and. Uh, and then I remember being there one day, he puts Adam up on the refrigerator, and then he just says, okay, Adam, jump. And dad's standing right there, and without missing a beat, Adam, three three years old, jumps off the top of the refrigerator, and dad grabs him in his arms. <laughs> well, he did that because he, what, children are, are trusting. And he trusted that if dad said jump, he was going to catch him. So childlike faith is is trusting. Um Childlike faith is total dependence, especially young children. They're totally dependent on, on mom and dad. And that's the way salvation is. Uh, the phrase, nothing to the cross I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's, that's what salvation is. We don't, we don't bring anything to the table. It's all, it's all Jesus. And so it's childlike faith is, is trusting. It's, it's hum, being humble. It takes humility to admit that we have a need in our life. It takes humility to admit we cannot save ourselves. It takes humility to admit that we need a Savior, and His name is Jesus. And so uh, entrance into God's kingdom requires childlike faith. That's why the research tells us that most people, and, I, and I've read percentages anywhere from 55% to up to almost 85%, most people, when they do surveys, have come to know Christ as their Savior in a 414 window. Between the ages of 4 and 14 is prime time to receive Jesus as their Savior. And that's when most people, uh, when they do these surveys, yes, God can work in everybody's life, and He can work in, later in life, but... Uh, the the high percentage of people that put their faith in Christ do so when they're young. And that's uh, Jesus says it takes uh, childlike faith to enter into God's kingdom. Last one, and just real quick, we don't have time to look at it. Greatness in God's kingdom does not involve power, position, or prestige, but humility and servanthood. 
So let me give you the full context of Matthew 18, uh, verses 1 through 5. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Uh, the disciples didn't get it. And, and all through Jesus' ministry, uh, they were jockeying for position. Remember, it was uh, James and John's mom who took Jesus aside and like, Jesus, when when you come into your kingdom and you're in charge, can, can you put like James on the right hand and my other son on the left hand? Can, can they have those positions? And uh, Jesus took that opportunity to talk about greatness. So they're, they're wanting to know, who's the greatest in God's kingdom? It says he called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And then as we just read, he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And then we don't have the time to look at the rest of the chapter, but he gives Jesus gives a scalding rebuke to anybody who offends a child or causes a child to stumble in their life. So greatness in God's kingdom is not the way we define greatness of uh, uh, success and position and prestige, but it's like childlike faith, and it's receiving children and taking the humble position of a child. And as uh, Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 20, uh, verses 20 through 28, that greatness in God's kingdom, the greatest one, is the servant of all. And so greatness in God's kingdom, he defines greatness as not by how many people serve you, but how many people do you serve? Jesus demonstrated humility and servanthood in the upper room there in John chapter 13, right before he went to the cross. And there he is. He's, he's going to die on, and be crucified in a couple of days. And they're in the upper room, and there's no servant there to do the, um, the, do the foot washing. And what's Jesus doing? He says he takes out his outer garment, he wraps a towel around his waist, and he goes around and he washes the smelly, stinky feet of 12 disciples. Even Judas Iscariot, who very soon was going to betray Jesus to the Roman authorities. That's, that's, that's greatness. That's the picture of humility, and that's the picture of servanthood and greatness in God's kingdom. And so uh, what does the Bible have to say about, about children? Well, the Scripture tells us very clearly that uh, uh, the children are uh, a gift from God. They're important and that um, we need to be like Jesus and loving children, and we can't get into God's kingdom without childlike faith, and greatness comes from imitating the characteristics of a child. So uh, just four quick questions here uh, as we conclude, then, and then we're done. Questions to consider. So here's the first one. Have I, in childlike faith, put my trust in Jesus Christ for my eternal salvation? So Jesus said, without becoming like a child, you can't enter God's kingdom. And so uh, maybe if uh, I'm preaching to the choir here, but uh, perhaps not. So uh, the, the only way we can get into God's kingdom is to humbly admit that we have a need, repent of our sin, 
uh, place our faith and trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross and put our full trust in him to be our savior. And we pass from death into life. And we just simply express that to him through, through a prayer that says, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't make it to heaven on my own. I turn from my sin. I put my faith and trust in you. And right now I, I receive Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross and payment for my sin to be my savior. Have I in childlike faith ever put my trust in Jesus as my Savior? It's not uh, putting our trust in good works. It's not in church membership. It's not in church attendance. It's not in baptism. It's not in anything else but Jesus alone. Number two, have I learned the importance of the blessing? Have I learned the importance of the blessing? Uh, The passage in Mark chapter uh, 10, and I'm not sure we read the entire section there in Mark chapter 10, But verse 16 says that Jesus took the children in his arms and it says he placed his hands on them and he blessed them. So have I learned the importance of the blessing? Now, this is is a whole message in in itself. Um, But the uh, Old Testament concept of the blessing uh, is, is all through the Old Testament. If we had time, we'd look at uh, Genesis chapter 49, where Jacob um, is gathering his 12 sons around him, the eventual tribes of Israel. Jacob's about to die, and what does he do? He pronounces a blessing on each of them. And uh, uh, Jesus experienced the blessing in his life. At his baptism, Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, the heavens opened up and a loud voice came down from heaven This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It was his father pronouncing words of of blessing and words of approval and words of encouragement. And it's something that we all long for and we all need. And many times we grow up in a home and we discover we never got the blessing. Yes, we know our mom and dad loved us and dad went to work and cared for us but did we ever hear the words i love you i'm proud of you many people didn't my dad my dad's father was a banker he was a very quiet reserved man and that's kind of the home that my dad grew up in and uh, i knew my dad loved me but like uh, there wasn't a lot of uh, verbalizing that or of uh, uh, maybe uh, a human touch and affection, and that's part of the blessing. I'll go over it in just a little bit. Until my dad turned 50, I was already married. I remember him uh, and my stepmom coming to visit our house in Grand Rapids. I was in seminary. And I opened the door and hadn't seen my dad in a few months. And he comes in and uh, he greets me. And then all of a sudden he like puts his arms around me and gives me a big hug. And I'm like, what's going on here? (laughs) That was unusual. And deep down inside, I loved that. That my dad would give me a hug. 
somehow in his growth in Christ. And maybe it was this concept of the blessing. Uh, Gary Smalley and John Trent, Gary Smalley's with the Lord now, and John Trent, they wrote a whole book called The Blessing about 40 years ago. It was all based on this concept of the blessing. Now John Trent is president of a group called Strong Families. And he goes around the country um, preaching, teaching about the blessing. So um, here, here it is. Here's the blessing. Five elements of the blessing uh, this is off his website. The blessing is a choice and a gift. It is either given or withheld. There are five elements of the blessing. Appropriate, meaningful touch, a spoken or written word, attaching high value. I, I value you in my life. Picturing a special future, an act of genuine commitment. So I'm not just saying I I, I, I love you, and I, and I think that you know, God's going to use you in a great way, but I'm committed to seeing you uh, reach your, your goal that God has for you. And that's, those are the five elements of, of the blessing. If you want to investigate this further, uh, go to the website, theblessing.com, and you'll read all about uh, uh, the blessing and watch some videos on it. And um, I'd highly encourage you, if you have time, to, to do that. And number three, am I investing in the spiritual training of the next generation? Um, well, we certainly need to be doing that. And um, there's some psalms there that talks about uh, um, the importance of uh, passing God's truth on to uh, the generation that we saw standing on the platform here this morning. And then lastly is this, do I regularly and fervently pray for my children, grandchildren, and the generations to come. Do I regularly, fervently pray for my kids, my grandchildren, maybe some great-grandchildren, um, and, and bring them before the Lord on a regular, regular basis? It was a long time ago when Dr. James Dobson wrote a book, Straight Talk to Men and Their Wives, and he talks about this matter, uh, this burden that him and his wife Shirley felt uh, when they were raising their two children, Ryan and Danae Dobson. And, and I want you to listen, and then we're going to be done. I want you to listen to his, his burden for passing God's truth on to his two children. He writes, The urgency of this mission has taken Shirley and me to our knees since before the birth of our first child. Since October of 1971, it was written a long time ago, I have designated one day a week for fasting and prayer, specifically devoted to the spiritual welfare of our children. This commitment springs from an intense awareness of our need for divine assistance and the awesome task of parenthood. There is not enough knowledge in the books, not enough human wisdom on earth to guarantee the outcome of parenting. There are too many factors beyond our control, too many evil influences that mitigate against the Christian message. That is why we find ourselves in prayer week after week, uttering this familiar prayer. Lord, here we are again. You know what we need even before we ask. But let us say it one more time. When you consider the many requests we have made of you through the years regarding our health and ministry and the welfare of our loved ones, please put this supplication on the top of the list. Keep our family unbroken when we stand before you on the day of judgment. So there's Dr. Dobson and his wife, and they're fervently praying for their kids. And in the world in which we live, um, boy, we need to do 
the same. Well, the Bible has a lot to say about children, and I trust that as we think about um, the priority of children, that we'll, uh, we'll make them a priority in our life, we'll encourage them, we'll bless them. And so uh, let me close just by uh, praying for uh, all of you, but also all of your kids and grandkids and great-grandkids, and uh, we'll give them to the Lord. Father, uh, thank you that... Um, that you love us, and Lord, help us to uh, communicate to our children and grandchildren uh, how much you love them. And so, Lord, I, I pray right now for um, the uh, extended family members of every everyone here. Lord, I pray for our kids. Lord, I pray that they would come to know Christ. Lord, for some here who maybe um, their children are not walking with you, Lord, help us never to give up to realize that you continue to work in their lives. Help us to keep loving them and praying for them. Lord, we pray that our grandchildren would come to know Jesus as their Savior at a young age and that they would walk with you their whole lives. Lord, we pray that for the generations that will come beyond us, our our great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren. Lord, may you raise up a spiritual heritage in each of our families. And Lord, help us to faithfully do our part in that. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.